Welcome to the Illuminate Recovery Podcast. We shed light on mental health issues, mental illness, and addiction recovery. Ways to cope, manage, and inspire. Beyond the self-care we will discuss, you may need the help of a licensed professional. My name is Kurt Neider. I'm a husband, a father, entrepreneur, a handyman, and a student of life. I avoid conflict, I deflect with humor, and I'm fascinated by the human experience. And I'm Shelly Mangum. I am a clinical mental health counselor, and my favorite role of all times is grandma. I am a seeker of truth, and I feel like life should be approached with tremendous curiosity. I ask the dumb questions. I fill in the gaps. The Illuminate Recovery Podcast is brought to you by Illuminate Billing Advocates. Make billing and collection simple with leader in substance abuse and mental health billing services. Verification and analysis of benefits, pre-authorizations, utilization management, accurate claim submission and management, denial and appeal management, and industry-leading reporting. Improve your practice's cash flow and your ability to help your clients with Illuminate Billing Advocates. Uh, Today, it is my pleasure to be able to meet with Bill Payne. Bill Bill and I met at the Alema Harrington Golf uh, Golf Fundraising event um, this last, well, this summer, actually, and um, I was super impressed with his story. Uh, Bill is with Shamrock Plumbing, and he is an advocate for recovery. Bill, I just want to thank you for being willing to come on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I, I hope that I can do it justice. Well, I think um, for me, stories are the most powerful, um, at least for me. I think everybody has a little bit different learning style, but stories really resonate with me, and I seem to connect with them and remember them and learn from them probably more powerfully than almost anything else. So um, I, I love it when people are willing to share their recovery stories and their journey and um and with that, you might, you know, maybe um, you want to give us a little bit of history and give the listeners a little bit of history as to how you ended up where you are today. Sure. I hope I uh, don't bore anybody to sleep. But my, uh, I, I grew up in, uh, I was born in California, grew up mostly in Utah. Uh, my mother was married three times, divorced twice. Uh, my real father uh, was an alcoholic. He left us when I was uh, three, um, and I realistically didn't make peace with that until actually last year, but we'll get to that part of it. Uh, she married again to an abusive alcoholic musician uh, who uh, physically and mentally, uh, abused us when me and my two brothers and two sisters, when he was under the influence. Um, and then he moved to California with every intention of dragging us along with him at a later date when he hit a big, because he was going to be a drummer in a band somewhere in Los Angeles. And uh, uh, my mother divorced him, and we basically hid from him for a couple of years. And when I was 12, he 
11. I, when I was 11, my mother started dating the man that she was married to until her death five years ago. And uh, he took on the responsibility of, of five kids and uh, my mom. And, and uh, it wasn't an easy go for him because I equated uh, men to causing pain in our family. So I wasn't good to him at all. I threw rocks at his car when he'd drive away and he would chase me, but he couldn't catch me. Um, but we wound up being very close over the years and, and uh, he's obviously not an alcoholic, but he, he still enjoys his drink. Um, and, you know, we, we're, still, we're still close. Um, so to backtrack a little bit into, into my childhood, um, my real father's name is, is Ron. Uh, my first stepdad was named Matt. So Ron, I didn't have a lot of connection with for a long time, obviously. Um, but Matt, the abusive, uh, alcoholic, uh, used to get us out of bed, uh, two o'clock, two thirty in the morning, whenever the gig ended at whatever bar he was playing at. And, and uh, we'd get knocked around and, and, uh, you know, I just, when you're a kid, you're growing up in that. You just kind of start to assume that that's normal. That's how things are. Um, but, you know, obviously in growth in my life, um, that's one of the things I found that wasn't that normal. Uh, I think when I was nine years old, I stayed overnight at a friend of mine down the street and this is in the if you're familiar with salt lake area this is in the nibley park area i went to nibley park elementary and uh uh the friend's name was ronnie star and i stayed overnight at his house and i was in the top bunk and he was in the bottom bunk of the bunk bed and about two o'clock in the morning i was just conditioned to kind of wake up and wait for uh all hell to break loose and uh I'm literally sitting on the edge of the bed and my friend wakes up, he goes, what are you doing? I go, I'm waiting for your dad to come down. He goes, my dad's not coming down. <laughs> and, you know, it was, it was like, wow, maybe my life is different and everybody else is normal. You know, it was, it was, uh, it, it's just something that stands out in my childhood. Um, and, and, uh, you know, dealing with with uh, a lot of that pain that was inflicted um, during that time of my life, you know, because when we're kids, when I was a kid, I can't speak for anybody else, but I'm pretty sure everyone's the same way. When I was a kid, I was seeking out love and affection from the male presence in my house. My mom always was really good about love and affection. Um, but I was seeking that out from the male figure in the house. And, and what we typically got was, was beat up and then, uh, you know, and then pampered the next day. Um, when I was nine, there used to be a little shopping center on the corner of a little grocery store on the corner of 7th East and 27th South, which is about a block away from where I live. 
Mac had come home and he wanted a sandwich and there was no mustard. So he had me run to the store to get mustard. And I mistakenly grabbed French's horseradish instead of mustard. They're in the same bottles, nine-year-old, in a hurry, trying to please someone who he couldn't please. I grabbed the wrong bottle. I ran home, gave it to him. He looked at it, said, this is horseradish, doubled up his fist, hit me across the side of the head and knocked me across the room. And then proceeded to have me eat the entire bottle of horseradish. So to this day, um, obviously I don't have horseradish on anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it's all part of what got me to where I was before I found sobriety. You know, these pains and these, these, these triggers. Um, and so we moved on from Mac. Um, and my mom married Mark Mantella, who was everything a father could be, you know, with little or no education and, and, you know, working for just above minimum wage. He worked two or three jobs to make sure we had everything we needed, whether it was to play Little League or football or whatever. He, he worked his ass off to make sure that that we were taken care of. And, and uh, I like to think that everything I learned about working hard and achieving um, was taught to me by him. Um, and uh, he's a good man. He's he's coming to the end of uh, of his road. You know, his health is is in bad shape, and and I probably don't do enough for him. But uh, he he's a good man. Um, I in growing up in I, I we moved from the area in Salt Lake and moved out to West Valley, where uh, Marv and Mom bought a house. Uh, continued to grow up there. Our house was the house that was uh, targeted by the LDS faithful at the time because, you know, there was drinking and stuff that went on in my house. My mom and dad were fine with us sitting down and having a drink with them once we were 14 or 15 years old as long as we didn't leave the house. Um, so for me, that just created an opportunity to begin my spiral, and, and I didn't even know it. Uh, and so, you know, kids like to hang out at our house, but parents didn't like their kids hanging out at our house. And, and uh, when I was uh, 18, 17, 17 years old, I was at a American Legion game and I saw a really cute blonde sitting across from me in the other bleachers and, and uh, I went to the dugout and I asked everybody on the team if they knew who that girl was and a friend of mine knew who she was or had a friend who knew who she was and so I, I showed up at her house and started dating her and and uh, she still currently my wife of 43 years, um, which is amazing considering what I put her through. Um, But during my courtship with her, I was uh, 
baptized by her father into the LDS church. Um, and I did that for the wrong reasons. Um, and it didn't, it didn't take that well. And, and we were together off and on for, for four years. And then during one of our on stretches when she was up at college at Utah State, um, she got pregnant, we got married, and we got married in July, had a baby in January, on January 3rd, and we moved to Southern California on February uh, 15th. So we had kind of a whirlwind of, of uh, things come together there. Um, it was uh, not the wedding or the mate that her parents had hoped for her, but um, it was what it was. Uh, at that point in my life, I don't know that I would recognize myself as an alcoholic or an addict. I had drank a little, I had smoked some weed, I had taken some hallucinogens, you know, but nothing that drew me back time and time again um, into that addiction. Uh, when we moved to California, to San Diego, I went to work for my uncle who owned a plumbing company. Um, and this was in 1979. That's how old I am. Um, it was in 1979. And I went to work with him. We, uh, I got to meet a lot of people who I thought were pretty cool, who helped me a lot in my young career. Um, a few of them introduced me to cocaine. Um, the very first time I did cocaine, I was, it was the best feeling I've ever experienced in my entire life. And I spent the next three or four years chasing that experience again, and I never found it, obviously, which is a constant with us addicts. We have that initial high that is never there, and after a period of time, we find ourselves chasing cocaine just to get to whatever normal is, and not so much for the high, but just to be normal. Um, any of us that have been in any rooms where they teach us about addiction have seen that graph where that initial high is like 100% and average is 50% and every time you do it, both of those go down. And uh, yeah, I, I chased it for a while and then I, I was really, really smart um, and I decided that meth would be better for me than cocaine. <laughs> and, and so I chased meth for another three years, um, the entire time having complete disregard for my family, for my health. Um, at that time, two daughters. Uh, during that period, I was a couple of things I think of note that are important to my story. Um, I had a growth on my pancreas um, and 
I was uh, scheduled for a surgery and my wife had arranged for one of the ward members to come down and, and give me a, a blessing and uh, an LDS blessing prior to the surgery that night. And that night he, he came in and, and him and a, one of the other people I didn't know from the ward and he gave me a blessing and he, uh, my mom was sitting there because it pretty extensive surgery. I still have a scar from my breastplate down to my belly button where they went in and they weren't as efficient then as they are these days with those surgeries. But he gave me a blessing in the blessing. He called me by name, which is consistent with those blessings. And then he spoke to me personally as if he was speaking from the Lord. And he told me that the Lord was aware of the challenges I was facing and that, and, and, and the choices I was making. And that if those choices didn't change that I would surely die. And this was in a blessing. And, and at the time I was, I was, uh, deeply offended. You know, I didn't, I didn't have enough clarity in my head or my heart to understand that meaning. And, uh, I went in for, you know, he left and my mom was kind of pissed about it. She's, she's, you know, de devout Catholic who as devout as a barmaid can be, but she was a devout Catholic and she goes, I thought that was supposed to be good stuff. And I'm like, yeah, me too. You know, and I was really pissed off about it. But we uh, went into surgery the next morning. They did the surgery to remove the, the growth on my pancreas and there was nothing there. It was scar tissue. Um, it had been clearly identified for four or five months and a lot of different testing. Um, and the doctor, it was, you know, it's kind of the unexplainable. You know, it, you have to have a lot of faith to believe that the Lord had a hand in someone as meek and as uh, troubled as, as, as me. Um, but at this point in my life, I, I certainly accept that. Uh, moving on from there, I still wasn't done. Still took another couple of years. Um, I had gone on a three-day bender down to Ensenada, Mexico, Rosarita Beach, that area. I came home from that trip to a U-Haul truck in front of my condo with ward members and my wife's parents moving everything out of the house with the exception of my clothes. Um, and I just, I drove by and I drove to the corner liquor store because in those days we didn't all have cell phones and uh, we had home phones and, and liquor stores were on every corner in Southern California so I went up got on the pay phone and called and says hey I get it I, I suck I've been a terrible husband I've been a terrible father I get it I, you're leaving I get it I says but I'd really really like to see my two daughters before you guys go I said, so if you can clear everybody out of there for about 15 minutes and just let me see them, 
I, I would appreciate it. So, and she agreed to do that. And uh, I got there and everybody was gone with the exception of her parents who were sitting out in front in their car. Um, my, at the time, uh, six-year-old daughter, Jenny, uh, who's a uh, incredibly talented, gifted, and renowned therapist at this point in her life, go figure. Um, she ran to me and locked around me and just crying, saying, I'm not leaving my dad. I'm not leaving my dad. And that went on for a good, oh, five to 10 minutes. And uh, my wife, Kathy, uh, expressed that she wasn't sure that she was doing the right thing. And so she called, she called her bishop and he came and gave her a blessing. And in the blessing, he didn't tell her what to do, much to his credit, because the right thing to do would have probably been to leave my ass. But he told her whatever decision she would make would be the right one and she would have to see it through and she chose to stay. And uh, her mother and father started the car up and drove all the way back to Salt Lake. I don't think they stopped for gas or to go to the bathroom or anything. They were really pissed off about it. Um, thought she was making a terrible mistake. Um, and, uh, you know, I think if we'd have lived here in Utah, she'd have had the support system in place that she would have had here with friends and church and different things that she probably probably wouldn't have stayed together. But I think being that far away and having to grow and rely on each other so much and not family that, you know, her decision to stay uh, helped us grow. And within about four or five months, see, there was a stretch there where I knew I was, I knew I was natting. I knew I was screwing up. I knew I was not doing good things and making poor choices. I, uh, and within about four or five months, we found a therapist, a family therapist who specialized in addiction. And we visited with him a couple of times and he talked me into going to an inpatient treatment center um, in San Diego at the San Diego Physicians Hospital in uh, right on the border of Encanto in San Diego, which is a really tough area. Um, and uh, up on the eighth floor is where, is where uh, uh, New Beginnings Drug and Alcohol Rehabilitation Center was. So I checked in there and I spent the first 24 hours uh, crying my eyes out like a little kid, um, swearing to everybody who would listen that I didn't belong there with those with those people. Um, and uh, I spent the next 24 hours trying to uh, ready myself to, to move forward and to, to do what I needed to do to, to be better. Um, I called my mom 
the second night. And I wasn't supposed to have phone privileges, but I was a pretty smooth talker and and uh, talked one of the nurses into giving me a phone privilege. And I called my mom and I told her where I was and what I was doing. And this is such a typical mom response. And she goes, what did I do wrong? Hmm. And uh, that was painful. And and uh, I, I says, you know, you didn't do anything, you know, nobody, Nobody held my hands, nobody held my arms, nobody forced stuff into my nose or down my throat or into a pipe. Nobody did those things. I did those things. And, uh, you know, it was it was tough. The, the irony of that, too, is that my sobriety date, which is February 3rd, is, is her birthday. Um, so I, I literally checked myself into the hospital on her birthday. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of really weird things there, but in the hospital, I everything they asked me to do, I did. Everything they told me I needed to do, I did. I didn't ask any questions. I didn't question their knowledge. I didn't. I just did what they told me to do because they told me in those rooms that if I followed this footprint that I could find clarity and I could find sobriety and, and, and I believed them. And one of the, a couple of the things that happened during my stay there, you know, I, I had always carried with me a burden of, of uh, being baptized and not really being baptized for the right reasons. and and making really poor choices beyond that um, into the LDS church. And, uh, you know, hellfire and damnation and all that stuff plays a lot into a lot of uh, recovery stories. You know, that's why the big book teaches us that, you know, it doesn't have to be a God, it doesn't have to be a Christ, it doesn't have to be any of those things. You just need to believe in something greater than ourselves is in control of that of the plan, right? Um, but I remember sitting in one of those rooms and I was 29 years old and a sweet little old lady who came in for in-service and would just talk to us um, was talking to us about Christ and, and God and their place in our lives and I was like, yeah, I raised my hand I says, I don't know if I can get there. And she looked at me just in a way that a grandmother or a mother or someone very close that you love very much would look at you. And she said to me, and this has stuck with me forever, is she said to me that if Christ is not in your life, who's moved? And I thought about that for a minute and I thought, yeah, dead straight. I'm the one who's got to find my way back. He hasn't left me, you know? And, and, and so for me, that was a turning point for me to start understanding there was a path for me, not only in addiction, 
our sobriety, but also spiritually. And uh, that was that was an important milestone for me to to open my heart to be able to grow spiritually. Um, over the next thirty days. Um, I grew more and more comfortable in those walls, um, as any of us who have experienced in-house treatment uh, grow to do. And then, you know, the end of 30 days, you know, it's it's, it's time to go. And I, I was more afraid to leave than I was actually afraid when I got there. Uh, because I was going to have to wake myself up and I was going to have to make my own decisions and I was going to have to work to my family's timetable, not mine. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, that was 35 and a half years ago and knock on wood, um, I haven't had to, I haven't had to go back. I haven't slipped. I haven't fallen, but I did everything that, they told me to do. I went to a meeting a day for 30 days. I went to, you know, and I, I gradually built it down. But in the first year of 365 days, I probably attended 300 meetings, you know, because I needed to be around people like me who were the same but different. I mean, all of us have unique stories to our own sobrieties, but we're all the same in that we we chase that high or we chase that drink or and uh, I needed to be around those people to feel comfortable for a long time and then as I grew uh, health wise mental health and spiritually I was able to move away from those rooms into other rooms where they talk about, you know, eternal paths and, and God and Christ and, and those kind of relationships that are a big part of my life, but they don't have to be a part of a recovering person's life. Uh, but they're a big part of my life. You know, the, the, I've grown to believe, and this is something that I've, I've thought of, that spirituality is, is so key to recovery. And when I say spirituality, I want to make sure that everyone listening understands that I feel like there's a huge difference between spirituality and religion. You know, I think that the religious person has a scripture for every experience, right? And but I think that the spiritual person has an experience for every scripture. Mm. And I've applied that in my life. I, you know, I I sit in church rooms and I feel really dumb sometimes. Um. But I've spoken in church rooms where I've felt the spirit so strong that I can't deny it. 
I hope that makes sense. It makes sense to me in my head, but I'm, you know, I'm an old plumber. So, um, you know, those things are, uh, but the spirituality, I think, is, you know, I'm, I'm 35 and a half years in, and, and uh, spirituality is, is, I would say, is, um, you know, one of the two or three biggest reasons I'm able to be 35 and a half years in. Hmm. Um, you know, from from there, I was I just always made took the opportunity to surround myself. You know that stupid saying that they say in AA rooms or in 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 house where they say playgrounds and playmates, where that has to change. Right? You can't you can't have that mighty change of heart that Dr. Bob talks about or Bill W. talks about without moving on from the things that took you down. You just can't. I, I have a little brother who's been in and out of uh, the jail and prison systems here in Utah. And he's gone stretches of, you know, a year, two years where he doesn't drink or he doesn't do drugs. and. But he's the same person. He's the exact same person before, during, and after. And it's because of what he surrounds himself with. You know, if you're not going to be about that life anymore, you just, you got to play grounds and playmates. You got to change. Mm. Um, I, I just, I think that as we make choices in our, relationships and our friendships even where we even where we go to work sometimes right you want to choose I had to choose I can't again I catch myself speaking for other people I had to choose places where I didn't feel challenged and I didn't feel and I felt comfortable and I felt like a lot of the values and a lot of the a lot of the spirituality that I was seeking out for myself was available to me, um, rather in, in friends and, and, uh, you know, when I, I was fortunate enough that, and this is, this is going to get, this is going to probably piss some people off and maybe not, but I came back into the LDS church in Southern California, um, the acceptance level for someone like me um, in California, in Southern California, was incredible. They welcomed me with open arms. They loved me for who I was, loved me for my past, and loved me for my future. I feel like sometimes in our culture here in Utah, that that acceptance isn't there and, and, and that there's a fair amount of, of judgment to be spread around. Um, and that's painful for me to watch. I, I've watched my children experience it. I've experienced it, you know, and I mean, it's, it's really nothing. It's nothing that you can't get past, but it's it's real. If, but I can, I think I can honestly say, in all clarity, 
that had, I tried to come back into the church of the LDS church here in Utah and been faced with some of the same challenges that I see people faced with, I probably wouldn't have made it. I'd have maybe made some other choices. Um, and it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing thing for me. I challenge that, uh, periodically and with the people that I go to church with, you know, and, and, uh, Sometimes it's okay, sometimes it's not that good, but it's, you know, I, I can't sit on my emotions and my feelings um, of truth and clarity in my own life anymore. I did that for a long time, you know, and, and part of the trigger is why I suppressed uh, a lot of, of, of what, what had gone on in my life. Um, you know, the, the abuse, the, the, uh, physical abuse, the, the things that had gone on in my young life that I tried to suppress and tried to forget by, by, uh, drinking and drugging. Um, let me ask you a question, Bill. <clears throat> if, if I'm, if I'm listening correctly and you correct me if I'm wrong, but I heard you talk about as a child, obviously the abuse, which was really difficult. Um, but that, that your home as a child was targeted. I think that was your word targeted by the LDS church and, and certainly, or at least was those families in your area, you know, and that idea that they certainly didn't want their children hanging around somewhere where, where there's a family that's openly allowing their teenagers to drink. And so you saw that experience and and then you talked about being baptized um, when you married your wife, and that in and of itself was an interesting situation. And so it seems like you may, it seems like maybe there was some really, maybe some bad taste in your mouth towards that, that religious belief system, and yet you still, you still kind of um, lean towards that and embrace that. Can you talk about that piece a little bit? Sure. I, I actually think it's, it's, it's relatively simple for me, right? I, what I embrace is the truthfulness that I find in that gospel. What I don't embrace is the imperfect people that try and apply it in my life. Um, hopefully that makes sense. I, I, I feel... I feel, I mean, if, 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 if a person, if, if I'm familiar with the big book and I'm familiar with like, let's take the word of wisdom in the LDS church, right? Those two things parallel each other. Like they were written in the same vision, right? It, it's, it's, there's, there's so many parallels and, and really the, at the end of the day, and there's there's some things, I, I don't wanna make this about the LDS church. I, I don't, I, I, I don't because my belief and my spirituality at this point in my life are centered in the LDS church. And there is so much good that comes for that from that in my life. 
but the application that individuals take liberty with. Um, I'll give you an example, and hopefully this, and, and you can jump in any time because I, I can understand how I spun that to sound that way, and I really didn't mean it to. Um, my wife and I were sitting in a Sunday school class, and one of the board members we were talking about something, I don't know about, I don't even remember what, what the lesson was on, and, and one of the ward members raised their hand and they said, you know, I struggle with when and where to apply righteous judgment in our lives. And I just start kind of squirming in my seat, and my wife starts squirming in her seat, because we both feel the same way about this. And I raised my hand, and I just says, you know, I says, uh, righteous judgment is the most overused, undereducated term in the Mormon dictionary. I says, none of us in this room are capable of righteous judgment. And I got up and I left. Um, you know, my family's been impacted by righteous judgment, but that's not the church making that judgment, that's an individual making that judgment, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's an individual saying, I don't want my kid playing with your kid or I don't want my kids hanging out at your house. It's interesting that we talk about that because I, I spoke in a church state conference a few years ago about loving your fellow man because I think that in the end, that's what all churches seek is for us to love our fellow man or fellow woman or... Um, but I, I spoke to that, you know, that the, the very impact that judgment has on each of us and how none of us are capable of seeing the whole thing. You know, I mean, we see all these little memes on social media or wherever, you know, and it talks about be kind, you never know what someone else is going through. And, and there's 15 different plays on that. Um, and that's just a reality, you know, my, uh, my therapist daughter, my oldest daughter, um, works with young people in and out of the church. She's, she's not a member, um, who struggle with anxiety and depression, right? I mean, those are two gateway terms to alcoholism, addiction, or suicide, um, and she's, she's amazing. She's amazing with them. And um, I've learned a lot from her. And I think she's learned a lot from me about acceptance, you know? And, you know, I, I just, I, I don't think that any of us were put on this earth who don't belong here. I think I, I, I spent three and a half years in a church calling at the Davis County Jail, um, going over once a week on, on Wednesdays and once every Sunday morning and hanging out. I mean, loving these guys who had made mistakes and having them know that they had done nothing to this point in their life that they couldn't find a way back. And I knew that because I've, I've done most of those things, you know? I mean, 
every, pretty much every addict, I, I lied, I cheated, I stole, I did all the things that addicts do. I got pulled over with an eight ball of cocaine in my pocket, right in front of Mission Bay Park, overlooking SeaWorld. Highway Patrolman comes up to the car, and this is a, towards the end of my run, and he says, hey, you know, you're going fast. I'm like, yeah, I don't care. I mean, I'm literally crying for help, right? An eight ball of cocaine in my front pocket. And he talks to me for a minute, he goes back, he comes back, he writes me a ticket, hands me a ticket, I wadded it up, I threw it on the floor, I said, are we done here? And he says, yeah, and I just laid rubber and took off. If I did that today, I'd probably be surrounded by 15 cops. And, you know, it, it was just a different time then, I guess. But that was me crying out for help and something greater than me keeping me out of jail, I guess. I don't know. Um, but I, I've, uh, you know, I've, I've learned, you know, what works for me isn't necessarily what works for everybody else, but the constant in it is spirituality. And like I expressed, I think that there's an absolute black and white difference between spirituality and religion. Um, I don't think you have to have religion to be sober, but I think you absolutely have to have spirituality. And um, in the root of the of the gospel, regardless of who believes how it got here, what is a path for me? I believe that I took the proper steps, much like the fifth step, right? Much like a fifth step where we we reveal to ourselves and to another human being the exact nature of our wrong and make good wherever we can, except when in to do so would create more harm than good. Well, I did that, but I chose to do it with, a, with an LDS bishop. And I can, I can tell you that I came away from there um, more spiritually aware of myself than I was before I walked in. Uh, so if, if earlier in this I made, made you think, and you're, you're incredibly intelligent to catch that, but if I made you think that I had a beef with the religion, I, I don't. I have a beef with people who apply it incorrectly, imperfect people, and then applying imperfect uh, ways of thinking. Well, and I appreciate you kind of clarifying that, but but I would imagine, Bill, that as a as a young boy who's experienced some, you know, pretty traumatic um, experiences with you know you with your your father figures um and it you know felt that rejection of people around you um even as an adult not even as you know as a young person of course but as an adult that still today there you know you've come to some terms with that and you understand that 
that perhaps, you know, it's the people exercising their belief system, you know, maybe improperly. But as a young boy, I think it's, it's harder. I mean, you don't have that maturity to say there's a difference between spirituality and, and how people apply that and live their beliefs. Um, and so I imagine there was some confusion for you in trying to come to amends as to how you were going to feel about, you know, about spirituality versus religion. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that that's accurate. I, I did struggle with that. Um, and it took me some time. And, and when I speak of the people in, in San Diego who welcomed me and loved me, no matter what, that's the time I needed. Um, I needed people to care about me and respect my journey. You know, I, I, the, the talk I gave in that state conference, I spoke to, um, one of the phrases I used is, I've been to the places that you don't want your children to go. And in hopes that, two things, in hopes that, you know, they allow their children the freedom to grow individually but also that they understood that their righteous judgments that they were making upon people weren't necessarily the right things. You know, one of the, one of the epiphanies that happened to me even, even later, so beyond this, this is after I moved back to Salt Lake, been in Salt Lake for probably eight years. My two oldest daughters were, were uh, high school and competitive softball players. And I was a, a softball coach. I coached at Davis High School for, as an assistant, as a head coach for about seven years. Um, but my, my second oldest daughter, who's 40 now, uh, we had played in a softball tournament all weekend. And we came home from the softball tournament, and then the house next door was, was my house as a, as a kid. Right, it was a house that parents didn't want their kids to go to, and there's a rager going on over there. And one of the girls who lived there um, was really good friends earlier in my daughter's childhood. And we had come home from the softball tournament, and the party's going on. And I looked at my daughter. I says, "You know, it's a good thing we pushed you in a different direction because you might be over there at that party." And she looked at me stone cold without hesitation and told me that if I hadn't pushed her away, maybe her friend would be with us. And, you know, I'm old and I have a lot of experience and I, you know, but my daughter taught me in that moment that I was wrong. And uh, I've tried to never repeat that in my life because of those words from her. That's a pretty um, powerful comment, Bill. It's pretty powerful that you can, you know, that you can own. I think, I think we all make, and what you say is that we, we all make these mistakes, right? We all make these judgments that we think are, are, 
our healthy judgments or safe judgments or and, and we have to do that all day long um, but what I hear you saying is is that when it comes to a human being and a human life we have to open and, and accept them because we never know how that's going to impact them absolutely and I, I think my my big question to you Bill is how do we how do we teach that to, to how do we teach that to people or how do we make them more aware because I don't think people make those kind of judgments and and hurt people and exclude people I don't think they do it knowingly because um, if they knew and understood they wouldn't do it so how do we help them and and create a more connected community Wow um. That's a, that's a great question. I, I, uh, acceptance is, I think, such a challenge for, for all of us. I know, I know that it is, that it has been for me. I think that, I think that at this point in my life, if I don't roll with the punches, it triggers me to start thinking that maybe there's an easier path with, uh, cocaine or meth or drinking or something. Um, I just, I have so many people that have influenced me in my life to learn how to love and how to accept my mother. Um, our house was, I mean, if somebody was having a problem with their parents or somebody needed a place to stay for a week, that was our house. Um, my house um, became that way as my daughters grew a little older. Um, I uh, I remember when I baptized my youngest daughter, and in her confirmation blessing, I expressed to her that it was important for her to have relationships from all walks of life and to be accepting and to uh, be loving. And uh, she, that's her to a T, you know, that's, she's, she's not active in the LDS church. I only have one active daughter in the LDS church, which is, which brings a lot of concern to my sweet wife. Um, but they're all such good kids with such good hearts who care so much about people that I have a hard time challenging them on, on much of anything because they're, they're good people. And, uh, our, our, our world right now is, is either hate or hate, right? I mean, it's, it's so divided and so hung up on, on so many issues and, and there doesn't feel to be a middle ground. And, uh, that's hard. I mean, this is, I couldn't be 17, 18, 19, 20 in this world today. I'd, I'd probably get high and commit suicide, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, because that's, that's the path that takes us when we have, you know, mental health takes us down that road and we have no recourse but to end it. Um, as to your question of how do we, I, I don't know that I'm smart enough to 
give you a, an educated answer on that. I can tell you that how I do it is I just accept people. They're, you know, I'm the one who has to have the boundaries as to what can come into my life and what can't come into my life. But as far as loving people and being kind and trying to help people, there, there's no boundaries on that, in my opinion. Uh, loving people and caring about people is essential to having the ability to be kind. Um, and I don't care who it is. I don't care if it's, you know, somebody who's wronged you that you need to forgive. I. I took a journey last summer in the middle of COVID. I jumped on my motorcycle and I went by myself for four days um, up through the Cascades and into Missoula, Montana and found my dad's, my real father's headstone. He had died an instant death in 1974 on Christmas Day. He drank himself to death. We didn't find out about that till four years later, but I needed to go visit his headstone. I needed, I was at a place in my life where I needed to make peace with that. And I sat there in the pouring rain and cried and I prayed and I cried and I called my sister and we cried and we prayed. And I left there feeling like I had accomplished something. I, I let go of the shackles that had burdened me for 64 years, 63 years um, of his leaving. I understood today why he did the things he did because I've lived those things, right? I mean, I, I've lived the alcoholic life, I've lived the addict life. I realize in his life that those things in his addictions were more important to him than I was. I made those same choices. So I needed to forgive him as people forgave me. Uh, I've just been fortunate to have people in my life who have granted me grace and forgiveness when I couldn't find grace in my own heart or forgiveness in my own heart and have been examples to me. My father-in-law who has been gone for about 16 years now, maybe 17 years, Jack Powers. Um, when I got sober and we sat down and we talked, he, he gave me so much grace. He forgave me. He understood me. He loved me. And he was just an incredible example of grace in my life. I think that all tend, I tend to want to find a reason for the way things happen. Um, consistently.
right? There's got to be a right and wrong. There can't, you know, stuff just can't happen for the sake of happening. And I'm learning in my life to accept that, you know, things just happen. And it's not anybody's fault and there's nobody to blame. And we have to make the best of what we're left with and we just got to love people and we have to be as happy for their, for anybody else's achievements as we are for our own. Well, we I, have to be happy. Go, go ahead, I'm sorry. And I, I think, Bill, is what you're describing and what you're talking about, particularly with your birth father, is, is your ability to be able to let go has increased your capacity to love and accept others, right? Being able to heal that part inside of you um, has allowed you to increase and be able to love others and open to others even more significantly than you have than you do now, and I and I think to my question that I asked you is how do we, <clears throat> you know, how do we help people get past that? I, I think the first thing, and you've talked about the way to do that, is that first we recognize that every one of us is is um, has made the mistake of excluding somebody for one reason or another, right? We all have done it. We're all, we're all guilty of that very thing. And, and so instead of pointing fingers and blaming other people, we've got to turn that into ourselves and say, look, if I'm doing that, then I need to pay more attention to what I'm doing and be better at that um, so that I can, you know, set that example for other people and help them understand when they might be being judgmental and they don't even know it. Um, and the, the one way that I think that your story particularly does that is that you're so willing to be vulnerable and to share your story and to express those wounds that you experienced as a kid, which was enough to turn anybody bitter, right? Enough to turn anybody, um, you know, into somebody who is hateful and spiteful and angry and, and to be able to share your journey and your willingness to understand that the most important part of your recovery was love and connection, and then be able to work towards providing that to other people. I think, I think that's how we, you know, one step at a time, one person at a time, that's, that's how we change um, our lives and the lives of other people is just to help them become aware um, of what they're doing. And I love your story. I love that you're willing to share such a personal and um, and powerful story of healing and recovery um, and, and the way that your relationships, I mean, you talked about your wife who stayed with you even though she wasn't sure that was the right thing to do and, and, stud, and stuck by your side and your willingness to do the right thing and to get into treatment and to, to change so that you could show up for your kids and your family. It's a powerful story, Bill, and I can't um, thank you enough for being willing to share it today. Thank you for having me. It's uh, it's always uh, cathartic to to tell that story, right? I mean, it, it, it's 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 ours to keep, but we can't keep it unless we share it. So, yeah. um, that I, I appreciate the opportunity to spend time with you. I uh, never wrote the script for me being on a podcast, but but here I am. So, thank you very much for having me. Uh -huh. Oh, it's been a pleasure. I'll, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, Bill, if people want to get a hold of you and follow up with you and want to, you know, learn more and ask more about your, your story and your recovery, is there a way that, a good way for them to do that? 
Yeah, I, I think for the most part, email. Um, just, uh, you know, just my email here at shamrockbill at shamrockplumbing.net. And I know that that's not very personable, but it's, it's just the best way for me. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely um, appropriate way for people to con- connect with you. You're a busy guy and you got to make a living. Um, so I think that's absolutely appropriate and they can reach out and then you can get back with them when you have time. So, so thank you, Bill. I'd love to, um, to pick your brain more and hear more of your story. And so, you know, hopefully in the future we can reach back out and, and maybe continue this and do part two. Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd love to thank you again for the opportunity. You and, bet. Uh, you know, hopefully someone gets something out of it. Oh, yeah. I can't imagine somebody not getting something out of your story, Bill. Thank you so much. All right. Take care.